0: John chapter 7. We will be reading verses 25 through 52. Hear now the word of the Lord. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When the people heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to, him, said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Oh, Father, hallowed be thy name. What a great privilege we have, Lord, to come as your people, as the sheep of your fold, and gather around your word. Father, as the deer panteth for the water, so our souls pant for you, O God. We pray, Father, that we would be satisfied once again, as the affections of our heart are turned towards Christ, towards the Son whom you sent and gave for a people who were unworthy. Lord, we pray that as we peer now into this passage, this historical reality, that you would open its truths to us, that you would help us to see the glory of your Son in the midst of all of this hostility and confusion and division. And that we would see the beauty of his example and the love that he displayed for a people who did not want him and did not believe in him. Father, may our affections be set upon him. May Christ be consecrated as holy in our hearts today as we consider this passage. May you be honored and glorified. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, this week I went to see, I went to the movies for the first time in about a decade, and I went to see The Essential Church, which is in theaters right now. If you have not heard of it, it is a documentary around what happened at Grace Church in California and some other churches, specifically in Canada, through the COVID crisis. Uh, When the authority of the church was being challenged, by governmental authorities around the world. If you have not seen it or have not heard of it, I would highly recommend it. I think it's only in theaters for a couple more days, but it's a, it's a project worth seeing, and it's, it's a project worth supporting. But for me personally, I can honestly say it was a, it was a bit of an emotional experience. Uh, just remembering back on all that we went through as a nation and all that we went through specifically as a church, uh, remembering decisions that we had to wrestle through and think through carefully as governmental edicts were coming down on our heads and we we had to navigate them even with lawyers at hand. The apprehension of the unknown at the beginning of everything when we we didn't know how serious this was going to be or how many people were going to die. The pain of separation and isolation from the body for the few weeks that we were shut down and apart. But then the joy of regathering and the loss of some members, and the gain of others. Some of you are here today because you came during that season. It was, a, it was a bewildering time, to be sure. But in many ways, it was a time in which God displayed His faithfulness repeatedly to His people that He was walking through this trial. But above all, if there's anything we learned in 2020... It is that the authorities of this world truly do hate Christ. And when the opportunity presented itself to them, and when the opportunity presents itself again to them, they will do everything they can to rage against His authority and to rage against Him. Mayors and governors and prime ministers and leaders all over the world were all too eager to fight against the gathering of the church while simultaneously supporting riots in the streets. In opening things like casinos up very quickly. This shouldn't have shocked us and it shouldn't surprise us because this is exactly what the Bible tells us is true. This is Psalm 2, is it not? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in veins? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The world really does hate Christ, it hates his authority, it hates his church, and COVID shed light on that dark reality in a very profound way to our generation. Especially for us as Americans who have been, in many ways, shielded from this truth for many generations. But the reality is, it's nothing new. The church has always faced trials from authorities who think they can usurp God's authority, who think they can challenge the authority of Christ. And in fact, Christ faced this very thing in his day, as we see quite clearly in our passage today. The authorities are just raging against who he is, raging against the one who has all authority, the one who is actively carrying out the authority of heaven in this very moment. But what is remarkable in this passage, and what is instructive for us, is the way that Christ responds, is the way that Christ handles all of this. One of the most radical and difficult statements that Jesus ever made was in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, at the end of it. He said to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. And we see here today that He was only telling us to put into practice that which He practiced. Christ practiced what He preached. And today we have before us one of the most glorious invitations ever uttered from the lips of Christ. But what is remarkable about it is the context in which it happened. In the midst of hostility, confusion, unbelief, and division... Jesus issues a profound invitation of grace and mercy to an undeserving people. An invitation that speaks magnitudes about who He is and what He will provide to those who will come. And I want us to zero in on this invitation today and marvel at the character of God on display in this. The one who truly loves His enemies. But we're going to see that on both sides of this invitation, John frames this invitation with hostility and division towards Christ. There was hostility leading up to it, and there was division resulting from the invitation, with the invitation in the middle. And this framing only serves to highlight how gracious this invitation really was. So let's look at this, and let's start by looking at the the hostility leading up to it. Hostility both about his origins and his destiny. Look at, look at verse 25 with me. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So up to this point, Jesus has made his appearance and addressed the crowds at the Feast of Tabernacles. Right out in the open, in the temple courts, when the authorities had been looking him, looking for him because they wanted to kill him. And John now shows just how much confusion that brought to the people of Jerusalem. They were clearly aware that their authorities were wanting to kill him. And because of that, his, his boldness to just stand up out in the open and teach, along with the authorities' lack of action, was causing great consternation about what was going on. Maybe the authorities really know this is the Christ. Why are they not arresting him now? Maybe that's why they're not acting. Now, b- by way of reminder, Christ means Messiah. You know, the Jews very much were looking for their Messiah though they had a a very particular conception of what he would be like and how he would act. And because of their preconceived notions about the Messiah, many of them just outright and quickly dismissed any notion that Jesus could possibly be it. In this instance in particular, their reasoning was based on the fact that they knew where Jesus was from. But the The expectation of the Messiah at the day was that he would appear in such a way that that no one would know where he was from. Now, this isn't a questioning of the prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem in the Davidic line. They recognize that, as we will see in verse 42. This is more speaking of the idea that they believed the Messiah would, would live in secrecy and obscurity until the moment of his messianic appearance likely based off prophecies like Daniel 9 or Malachi 3, where it says he will appear in his temple suddenly. In their minds, when he appears, there would be no doubts about him. No one is going to be questioning, is this him or is this not? No, they believe that the Jews will see him suddenly and they will all know who he was. But with Christ, they know who he is. He's just an itinerant preacher who's been around for a few years. He grew up in Nazareth of Galilee. As many here can attest to. His family's even here. His brothers are here. and His home base is now in Capernaum. We, we know who this, who this man is. And we know where this man is from. And notice, notice the language. They keep using the language, this man. We know where this man comes from. That language is typically used to communicate distance it's not personal or even disdain this segment of the people of Jerusalem are not at all really considering the possibility that Jesus might actually be the messiah they know where this man is from and likely this is this is actually meant to show their impatience with the authorities Why are they allowing this man to go on like this? Why are they not arresting him? Now, now Jesus is aware of this talk that's going on. It wasn't addressed towards him, but he's aware of it, and he cuts in here to address it head on. Look at what he says, verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught them in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true. In him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now that that first line there is not meant to be seen as an affirmation of the truthfulness of what they were saying, because he goes on to correct them. He's not affirming their conclusion that they they know they have true knowledge of his origins. Jesus is actually speaking ironically here, sarcastically in making it known that he's, he's aware of what they were saying. He's aware of their reasoning. You, you know me? You, you know where I'm from? But I have not come on my own accord. This is, a, this is a corrective, not an affirmation. Now, for the reader, for us, we are meant to see the irony here. John lays thick irony all through this section, as we will see. But here, they are tying their beliefs, or better, their unbelief about Christ to His his origins. Their beliefs about His identity are rooted in what they believe about His origins, their supposed knowledge of where He is from, which in a sense is right. It's the right thing to do. But ironically, they have no idea where He is from. But you, as the reader of this gospel, You do know, because that is the foundation that John laid for this book, for the entire gospel, from the opening words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. See, we, we already know Jesus' origin. He was with God. He comes from God. And He tells them the exact same thing. He who sent me is true, and Him you do not know. I know Him, for I come from Him. My origins with God, and He sent me. Jesus makes it clear where He is from. I come from Him. But Jesus also makes a statement here. That to them would be just absolutely deeply offensive for any Jew. That they do not know God. Again, he's going after the very things that they were notorious for boasting in. We, we saw this last week with the law. They, they were notorious for boasting in the fact that they were the recipients of the law. But very ironically, it was the law that they boasted in that condemned them. And this week, they're boasting of their knowledge of God. They boasted in the fact that they were the chosen nation, that they alone knew God, and all the pagan nations surrounding him, surrounding them were ignorant of God. But here Jesus says to the chosen nation, you do not know Him. Why? Well, because they didn't recognize the one that was standing before them. The evidence that they did not know God was that they did not know Jesus. He's actually going to raise this again in chapter 8, and he'll get even more explicit to that reality there. In verse 42 of chapter 8, he's going to say to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Saying the exact same thing, just more explicit. The only people that know God are those that know the Son and love the Son, because it is the Son who is the revelation of God to this world. So to reject the Son and to not know the Son is to reject God, and it is to not know God. And this people very much did not know God. And they get it, At a base level, they understand what he's saying here. You do not know God. They get the accusation because his words struck a nerve, and you can see that in their reaction. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Keep in mind, this is the people that John is speaking of here. We're not talking about the Jewish leaders yet. This word, arrest, can also mean seize. The people grew so angry that they sought to just take things into their own hands and and do what they were expecting their authorities to do. They sought to seize Christ for themselves. But they couldn't. And I love that John gives us absolutely zero explanation here as to physically how it was that they could not seize him. This is only one man here. But he just tells us they couldn't as a matter of fact. And he tells us this from a, from a cosmological level rather than a physical level. No one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Which hour? Oh, it it's the hour of his, his glorification, which came through the cross. All through this book, we are meant to see this. Over and over and over, we are meant to see that God is in charge of this thing. His sovereignty rules over all, and no one was going to push the timeline up. No one was going to change God's plans, though they will try. The world is always trying to usurp God and his authority. And this this chapter began with the brothers trying to push up the timeline. And here the crowd is trying to push up the timeline. And soon the Jewish authorities are also going to try to push up the timeline, but they can't. Everything is functioning according to God's will and God's timing. There is an authority that rules over this world at all times, an unseen authority which should bring great comfort to you as a Christian. Nothing escapes the authority of God's sovereignty, which for us as believers, as Spurgeon once said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow in which we lay our heads at night. We ought to rest in that. We should not be a people who fear because God is in charge of all things. Steve Lawson once rightly said that some Christians live in such fear that they would seem that they believe in the sovereignty of Satan rather than sovereignty of God. May we not be that people. God's sovereign plan is always at work, even in the worst of things, even in the tragedies of life, even in things like COVID, even in things like what happened to Christ, as we will see. Because when His hour finally does come, when Christ is finally arrested and tortured and crucified, it is the sovereignty of God behind it all. It did not happen contrary to God's plan. It happened according to God's plan. Everything is functioning according to this divine timetable. So though they wanted to arrest Him now, they couldn't. Now on the exact opposite end of the spectrum... There were those who were not seeking to arrest Christ. But rather, John says, they believed. Look at verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, on one level, we don't know the sincerity of of the belief of these people. Were they truly trusting in Christ Christ? Or is this another example in the Gospel of John of the spurious belief of false disciples? I lean towards the latter for a couple of reasons. One is the justification that they give for their belief. It is simply on the fact that they saw him do some signs. Uh, This sounds very akin to what we saw back in chapter 2, the so-called belief of chapter 2. When many believed in him, when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men and he knew what was in men. I believe the same thing is going on here. But the second reason I think this is spurious belief is the language that they used. They used the same terminologies as though were those who were hostile. This man. It's not personal. It's separated. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? It's an impersonal and distant and even indifferent to, who, to His person. It seems more like a cold, calculated belief rather than a genuine trusting that this is the Son of God standing before them. I think these are likely the same people who will be waving palm branches and crying out Hosanna in six months' time to only join the cries of crucify Him a week later. It's fickle belief not rooted in who Christ really is. Nonetheless, their so-called belief stirs up the authorities to action. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest Him. So now, not only are the, the people seeking to arrest Christ, but so too are the leaders, It says that the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's actually a combination of Sadducees and Pharisees, two political parties that were typically enemies, that hated each other because of their differing beliefs, but they are now united in their hatred for Christ and their desire to bring Him to an end. The chatter that they were starting to hear about Jesus potentially being the Messiah is exactly what they were trying to avoid. This is why they intimidated people from the get-go into not speaking openly about him in the first place. Christ threatened their power. He threatened their influence. He threatened their authority, and they knew it. But I love how Christ responds here. Look at what he says, verse 33. And Jesus said to him, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is calm, cool, and collected. He's operating in complete and perfect trust in the divine outworking of his Father's plan. And despite nearly everyone wanting his death now, despite the fact that the officers have been dispatched, despite the fact that the crowd was seeking his arrest, Jesus just said, I'll be with you a little longer. Essentially, uh, I don't think I'm going to allow you to arrest me today. <laughs> but that time is coming. And it is then that I will be going back to him who sent me. Now, obviously these words were prophetic words. As Jesus was predicting not only his death, but even the timing of his death. It wouldn't be now, as they desired. But it would be soon. It's actually coming Six months' time, the next feast, the feast of the Passover. But for them, his death will mean eternal separation. Jesus will be exalted in glory. For them, they cannot come. Now, for disciples, what that means for them is a temporary separation. Because Jesus is going to use the same thing, the same words in chapter 13, speaking to his disciples. Where I am going, you cannot come. But then, just a few verses later, he says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. I will return to take you where I am, to take you to myself. Profound comfort for those who believe. But that comfort is not issued to these Jewish leaders who continue in their unbelief. Rather, they will seek Him, meaning they will seek God. For that is who He is, but they will not find Him. And where He is, they cannot come. Meaning they will not enter the kingdom of God. These are terrifying and sobering words from the Savior. But, of course, these these murderous leaders completely misunderstand what he is saying. Look at verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? In their arrogance, they mock Christ. Christ. Make no mistake about it. This is mockery. They suggest that Jesus will seek out Jews who are living among Gentiles. That's what the dispersion is. And he will seek a following among them and even with the Gentiles themselves. A suggestion that for a Jew is just absolutely disgraceful. It's absolutely abhorrent. They are implying that Jesus could only get a following from the lowest in this world. Yet, ironically, that's exactly what Jesus will do. Upon his glorification, he will send the good news of the gospel out to the nations and acquire followers from every tribe and nation and tongue. A people who are, by and large, not made up of the elites of this world, the wise and powerful of this world, but rather God will choose that which is foolish in this world to shame the wise. See 1 Corinthians 1. These leaders actually spoke better than they knew. What they meant as mockery would indeed become reality. But as you can see, the atmosphere of this feast was simply one of hostility. And it is in this context that Jesus now issues this great invitation. So let's look at what happened on the last day of this feast. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, as, as we consider what Jesus has said here, I, I want you to first notice the intentionality of the apostle John to emphasize when and how this took place this happened on the last day of the feast the the great day remember all of this has been taking place at the feast of tabernacles for seven days, the people have all been celebrating God's provision and in the ingathering of the harvest, as well as remembering the time in which God led His people through the wilderness, the time when their forefathers lived in tents or tabernacles or booths for 40 years as God provided for them. Now, the last and great day was, was actually the eighth day. While it was a seven-day feast, the eighth day had become a climactic celebration as they spent the day breaking down all of their booze and singing psalms together as a people. It had actually become what they referred to as the last good day or the last great day. It was a joyous occasion, the last, last feast of the year coming to its conclusion. But for seven days, they had been celebrating this feast that was just saturated with deep symbolism everywhere. With reference to what God had done and with what, reference to what God will do. And there's two significant rituals that took place on each of these seven days. One of them is the Festival of Lights which Jesus is going to play off in chapter 8 when he declares himself to be the light of the world, which we will talk about when he gets there. But the other was the water-drawing festival or the water-drawing ceremony. Each day of the feast, every day for seven days, a priest would actually draw water from the pool of Siloam with a golden flagon, which is essentially just a golden water pitcher, And the pitcher was carried in a procession led by the high priest from the the pool to the temple. And as they approached the temple, there would be a trumpet blast to announce its approach. Three times the trumpet would blow. And on the conclusion of the third trumpet blast, the, the temple choir would sing the halal. They would sing praise to God, Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. And in conclusion of Psalm 118, when the singing stopped, those in the procession would raise in their left hand branches and in their right hand a citrus fruit. And they would cry out three times, Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord! The various branches represented the various stages of the wilderness wanderings, and the fruit represented God's provision. Of, of rain, of water, which brought life, which led to the harvest. Now, the water from the pool of Siloam was then poured into a bowl at the base of the altar as an offering to God along with the morning sacrifice, which symbolically anticipated the coming time in which God would pour out His Spirit, Joel 2. And they connected this ceremony directly with Isaiah chapter 12. In fact, the Jewish Talmud actually says, Why is the name of it called the drawing out of water? Because with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, according to what it is said, with joy ye shall draw water from the wells of salvation. So this passage, Isaiah chapter 12, was, was read at the performance of this ritual. And it was performed every single day for seven days. Now, that all sounds pretty foreign to us, but to them, this was more significant and more tradition than any of the traditions we have on our holidays. I mean, when I say turkey holiday, everyone knows what I'm talking about because it's familiar to us. Our our traditions have familiarity. Everyone knows I'm speaking of Thanksgiving. But their traditions were far more significant than even ours were. They did this every single year, and they did this every day for seven days, and it was their most joyous and anticipated celebration of the year. In fact, the Mishnah actually says this, He that has never seen the joy of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy. That's how significant it was to them. Far more significant than what we can imagine. Now, understanding that and understanding that those seven days had come to a conclusion and this is the first day in which the water drawing ceremony was not performed, it is then that Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John makes the connection for us. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because, the Je- because Jesus was not yet glorified. But this was an incredible moment in redemptive history. Notice the words that John uses to describe Jesus' speech though. It says he stood up and he cried out. He doesn't use this very many places at all. This language is meant to demonstrate the actions of a prophet. Because the one standing here making this declaration is the prophet, the prophet who is greater than Moses, who will speak the very words of God to the people as Moses prophesied. But different than any other prophet who has come before him, this prophet does not have to preface his words with, Thus saith the Lord. Because when he speaks, God speaks. This is God standing and addressing his people. And his declaration here is to say that this festival, this ritual, everything points to him. He's, he is fulfilling everything that has been celebrated, everything that they have been anticipating. He is the God who led their fathers through the wilderness, He is the God who provides the harvest for them. But more than that, He is the only provision for every soul who thirsts anyone who wants to draw waters from the wells of salvation must come to him and drink notice the, the just the sheer graciousness of this invitation he says if anyone anyone let him come to me this invitation is for anyone and everyone This is Isaiah 55. The Jews would hear that. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is the freeness of the gospel being issued to anyone and everyone who will come. And remember, remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Jerusalem citizens who sought to seize him. He's speaking to traveling pilgrims who rejected him. He's speaking to officers who were dispatched to arrest him. And he is speaking to leaders who were intent to kill him. And he's speaking to those who only believed in him for his miracles. Yes, he is speaking to his own people, no doubt, but make no mistake about it, he is speaking to his enemies. And He's offering them salvation in Him. Free. Without money. Without price. If they would just come and drink. And that that same offer is the offer that is available to anyone and everyone today. And the reality is, apart from Christ, we are all enemies of God. Every gospel that... Issue that goes out is always going to the enemies of God. Every one of us was an enemy of God prior to Christ in our lives. This is Romans 5, is it not? Verse 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Christ loved his enemies. That is true in your life. That is true in any life that has come to Him. That is true in my life. And that is true here as He offers salvation to any and all who will come to Him. Because Christ is the provision. He is the provision of salvation to all who believe. And He is the provision and source of the Spirit of God to all who believe. And that's what He means by drink. To drink, to avail oneself of His gracious offer is simply to believe. It's to believe. That's why He says, whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture said, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. And John makes it clear that he is speaking by these rivers of living water of the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise of God that comes through salvation is Christ, of Christ. And just as water is associated with life, physically speaking. Without water, you have only death. Think of a desert. But with water, you have life. And when you have a constant source of water, you have a constant source of life. Trees planted next to streams, flowing water, also known as living water, they flourish at all times. They have life. So too is the same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of spiritual life. And when one comes to Christ, they are given the very source of spiritual life within them, eternal life within them, like flowing water, like living water, a river that never runs dry. That is what he means here by out of his heart, or another way to translate this would be from within him will flow rivers of living water, never running dry. The very source of life itself exists within every believer. Everyone who trusts in Christ. And this is why the the promise of God for those who believe is eternal life. Because they've been given the source of life. You cannot die. Eternally. And it it is the promise. The Holy Spirit is the promise that the scriptures have always been pointing towards. When Jesus says... As the scripture says, he's actually not quoting just a singular verse. You, you will look in vain for a, a passage of scripture, scripture that says, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's not quoting a verse verbatim. He is summarizing the message and the promise of scripture with regards to salvation. To the salvation of God with the coming Holy Spirit. So many passages are feeding into what's being said here. Passages like Isaiah 12, with joy you will draw from the waters of salvation. Or Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart, and my spirit I will put within you. Or Isaiah 44, 3, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. Or even Isaiah 58, and you shall be like a well-watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not That is all speaking of the Holy Spirit in the believer. God has been foretelling of this coming salvation throughout the generations. But this blessing would only come as a result of Christ's victory on the cross. He had to redeem his people, cleanse them from their sin and the guilt of their sin before he could send their spirit to dwell within them before he could give this great gift. And this is why John clarifies the point that at this point he had not yet been given. That was coming. But it would come at the point of his hour. But this was a remarkable invitation, was it not? But, But let's look at how it was heard to those who originally heard it. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The People were in absolute turmoil over what to make of him. You know, in Jewish expectation... Most people believed that the coming prophet, the great prophet that Moses spoke of, and the coming Messiah were actually two different people. And no one believed that it would be God in the flesh who would fulfill all of these things. So they are debating. And after hearing these prophetic words, some say, this really is the prophet. Others, this is the Christ. And while both were true, the separation of those things still shows a fundamental misunderstanding of who they were actually dealing with. And then many others appeal to Micah's prophecy without doing any checking as to Jesus' origins. They just appeal here to write him off. But know this, the fact is, because of Jewish record-keeping for their lineage, for their tribes, it would not have been hard at all for them to seek out and discover where Christ was born. They weren't interested in that. It was, it was kept. They all knew their tribes and knew where they came from, where they were born. It was all kept on record. Every Jew knew what tribe they belonged to, and it could be verified. But they were not in, interested in verifying this at all. They were just using this as an excuse to discredit the possibility that this is the Messiah. They just wanted him arrested and they wanted him stopped. But again, all of this is meant to be seen as ironic because he is the Christ, because he is the prophet, because he is the offspring of David, and he was born in the city of Bethlehem, the city of David. All of these things were fulfilled in the God-man, Jesus Christ. But the people are just all over the board trying to, trying to make sense of these things, which only makes it worse in the eyes of the authorities. Their their control and influence was threatened. But their attempts to end this had failed. And this time, John gives us a little insight as to why. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him in? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I love this. The officers who were dispatched to arrest one man come back empty-handed. And not at all because a group of armed rebels rose up to defend Christ and fought back. They were not stopped by the physical sword at all but they were stopped by the the sharp, two-edged sword that proceeds from the mouth of Christ, just as John describes him in the book of Revelation. They were so struck by his words that they could not proceed with their orders to arrest him. Upon hearing it, no doubt the fear of God had hit them. And when they reported to their leaders as to why, again, they spoke better than they knew. No one ever spoke like this man. That is absolutely true in every conceivable fashion. No one ever spoke like Christ. Because again, this is is the Word of God made flesh. When He speaks, God speaks. No man speaks like God. This was God speaking to His people. Now these officers who were actually Levites... Religious Jews who knew the word of God, did some of them believe the words of Christ? John doesn't tell us. Maybe. But at the very least, we can say that they, they questioned his identity enough to disobey the orders of their superiors, which was a significant thing for them to do. And, of course, that only, again, infuriates and angers these authorities. They're just starting to rage here. And they ask their own guards, are you deceived too? They had, they had made up their minds about Christ. Christ is a deceiver, and therefore anyone who would follow him is a simple-minded fool who had been deceived by the deceiver. And not only is that true of the guards in their mind, it's also true of the crowds who are disputing over Christ's identity. They speak with just dismissive contempt as these ignorant peons who do not know the law like they do were debating these things. These were the elites who had superior knowledge, superior understanding of all things. And you can see that that is exactly what they think because they refer to themselves they use themselves as their supreme argument have any of the authorities or the pharisees believed in him as if that should just seal the deal all the superior minds had, had dismissed him and anyone with an inkling of sense would follow suit right but john shows us one more time another case of sheer irony is their argument turns on themselves Because there is one among them who is not in the same spot. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Our old friend Nicodemus is back. This time he shows up not questioning Christ, but questioning his own colleagues, his fellow leaders of the Jews, and the nature of his question is actually pretty insightful. It is insightful because it shows that he was listening to Christ, and not only was he listening to Christ, but he was already seeking to apply and obey what Christ had said. Remember what Jesus said back in verse 24, his final admonition that we looked at last week. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Clearly, this had made an impact on Mr. Nicodemus. Hearing that, he boldly calls out his own raging associates to give Jesus a fair hearing and to seek to understand him. Remember who this is. This is the teacher of Israel. If there was a supreme mind among the supreme minds, it was this man, Nicodemus. And he is not seeing things as the other Pharisees are seeing them. Now, we don't know if Nicodemus was born again at this point. Maybe he was. I kind of think that's a possibility. But we know that God is drawing him. We know the Father's drawing work is at work in the heart of Nicodemus. And we will see the, the full fruition of that come when we get to the end of the book, and he shows up one more time. But the raging authorities don't even consider his question. They just dismiss him with an intended insult. Are, are, you, are you from Galilee too? And they put, again, stock in their supposed knowledge of Jesus' origins to just justify their hostility. No prophet comes from Galilee. These leaders could not and would not be reasoned with. They were operating out of rage. They had no no desire at all to assess what's really going on. They are doing the opposite of what Jesus said. They were judging by sheer appearances, not with right judgment. Nicodemus shows us something. He shows us that God saves all kinds of people. And this is why Paul tells us to pray for those in authority. In 1 Timothy, kings and all of those in high places because God desires all people to come to the knowledge of truth. Even those who function as our enemies in this world are not beyond the power of the gospel. Look at the Apostle Paul as an example persecutor of the church, and then the supreme apostle of the church. And even here, a Pharisee sees the truth of Christ. What a remarkable display of grace in this passage. As we conclude, I want us to consider two two takeaways from this passage, one with regard to the invitation of Christ and one with regard to the example of Christ. And we'll start with an example. We have to remember the context in which this took place. It was in the midst of just sheer murderous hostility towards himself that Jesus issued this gospel call for salvation to be found in him. Think about that. Think about the weight of that. This is what it means to love your enemies to operate in this world with an eternal perspective. Loving your enemies is not being a peacekeeper. It's not avoiding people's discomfort and keeping things settled. It is being willing to stand up and boldly point a lost and dying people to the only place where anyone could ever find lasting peace, to Christ Himself. Yes, we live in a hostile world, a world that rages against Christ and His authority and His church, and we must stand for the truth of God's word in a culture that constantly propagates nothing but lies. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that, we cannot lose sight of the actual fight. We cannot lose sight of the gospel. We cannot lose sight of the fact that our enemies in this world are the mission field. And we are to love them with the truth of who Christ is and beckon them to come to salvation in Him. Let us follow the example of the captain of our salvation who would not speak, cease to speak the truth of forgiveness that can be found in Him even in the face of His own death, even in the face of those who hated Him. God is still in the business of saving sinners. May we all get in the fight and invite anyone and everyone to come drink at these wells of salvation found in Christ, in Christ alone. May we follow and walk as he walked in this world. But that leads us to our other takeaway, which is the consideration of the invitation itself from the mouth of Christ. That invitation is not just for unbelievers. It is for All of us. (laughs) What it means to endure in the Christian faith is that you continue to believe. The fight for your soul is the fight to continue to believe. The fight to come back to the wells of salvation every day. The fight to come back to Christ and see Him as supreme. The fight to not put stock in your flesh and not to look to your own relative goodness as you look around this world and, and you assess the culture that gets grosser and grosser. No, we are to come back to Christ. We are to believe upon Him every day, to drink deeply of the wells of salvation every day, to fight to be those who endure in our belief in Christ. This beckoning is something we as believers should hear and respond to every day. But if you are here today and you have not believed, If you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you are a guest or whether you are a child or whether you're just a hypocritical churchgoer who likes the show but doesn't live this out, you need to know that his call to come to him and drink is open to you now. Now. If you thirst and by that, it means you know your need of God. You know your need to receive forgiveness for sins that plague your conscience. If you have longings in your soul that you know this world cannot satisfy, then come to Christ. Only He can give you those things. Only He offers salvation. Only He offers forgiveness. Only He can satisfy the soul. This is why He came. That He might reveal God to a lost and dying world. And that He might save a people for Himself. That's what the cross is all about. It is there that He took on the wrath of God for our sin. For for our punishment. For the guilt of sinners like me and you. And it is through the resurrection that sinners who trust in Him will be raised with Him. If you put your trust in Christ, you this day can have your sins washed away, your conscience cleansed, and you can look forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ when he returns and takes you to be where he is. He offers that to any and to all who will come and drink these waters of salvation. Don't harden your heart towards that offer. It is here for you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've given us access to the wells of salvation in Christ. Thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit as a gift that secures our eternity. That gives us a constant source of life that never runs dry. Oh Lord, may we continue to turn back to that source of life. May we look to you. May we remember that we have unrestricted access to the God of the universe because of Christ, because of the gift he's given us. God, would you work in the hearts of your people, and Lord, would you work in those who may be here and don't know you. Open their eyes, Lord. Grant them faith. Draw them, we pray, that they would come to know you and see your Son as glorious, that they would trust in him this day. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.